this is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. In today's programme... Where conflict occurs, migration ensues. People move across borders. When epidemics spring up, if they're not managed, they move across borders. It's in everyone's interest to respond to these urgent needs that exist in these vulnerable locations. We can't continue to believe that uh, we can continue to be wealthy in the global north while the rest of the world lives in poverty. That's unsustainable. To me, there's a difference between aid in terms of famine, poverty, and aid in terms of political crises. And I think people get confused when you say we need this money for humanitarian aid, when you talk about conflict zones as opposed to just poverty. Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. Today we're going to look at the prospects for 2021 for humanitarian aid. Let's first hear from Antonio Guterres, who sounded a warning about what we might be looking at next year. The number of people at risk of starvation has doubled. Hundreds of millions of children are out of school. Levels of extreme poverty have risen for the first time in 22 years. Humanitarian aid budgets face dire shortfalls as the impact of the global pandemic continues to worsen. We need 35 billion US dollars to get life-saving aid to 160 million of the most vulnerable people. So the UN Secretary General there is asking for $35 billion. He knows the world is facing protracted conflict, ongoing humanitarian crises, and the double whammy, if you like, of a global pandemic. We're going to look today at whether donor countries are actually going to come up with that $35 billion. Is it going to be spent properly? Is it going to achieve anything? Whether... We are really approaching humanitarian aid in the right way. To join me to discuss this, I've got uh, who better, Rain Paulson from OCHA, the Office for uh, the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. I have Julie Bilow, specialist in humanitarianism and teaches in comparative humanitarianism at Geneva's Graduate Institute. And as ever, analyst Daniel Warner, Rain, of course, I am going to come to you first. Big ask, $35 billion, when the world is also struggling with this pandemic. So as we heard, the Secretary General is asking for $35 billion for urgent assistance in 2021. I think it's important to put these numbers in, in context. If we just look at where we were at the start of 2020, we estimated 170 million people in need of assistance. Now, in the appeal that was launched on the 1st of December, we're talking about 235 million people in need of assistance. That is a 40% increase in a 12-month period, an increase almost entirely due to the COVID-19 pandemic and its consequences. Some of the Secondary consequences that concern us particularly are the rise in hunger, uh, the imminent threat of famine in a number of uh, countries. Um, Colleagues at the World Food Programme and the Food and Agriculture Organization are talking about the possibility of 270 million people, as many as 270 million people at risk of famine if we don't act uh, urgently. We see protracted conflict taking place, political instability, 
This is the backdrop against which uh, it's vital that we then mobilize this attention and the needs have increased. And at the same time as donor countries themselves, of course, are having to launch unprecedented programs to deal with their own domestic situation. So we're in a challenging environment, but there has never been a more urgent need for humanitarian assistance, unfortunately, than there is in this year as we look into 2021. Julie, can I come to you? Because this is the biggest ever. It's a record appeal. Do you think it has resonance, these big, big numbers with the general public, for example? Well, I guess, yes. I think that's perhaps the first time in history that people everywhere in the world find themselves in a certain form of precarity. Of course, I would not say that uh, in the global north we experience the same kind of precarity than people in the global south. But nevertheless, I think we all are aware of the vulnerability and the precarity of life on the planet. So I think there is a global consciousness that is raising but uh, I'm not sure that uh, this will lead to greater solidarity. Maybe it will lead to further inward-looking societies and perhaps even the rise, and we've seen that over the past months, a rise in nationalist politics and uh, selfishness. I'm going to come to that particular point in just a minute, but first I want to bring you in, Danny, because even before the pandemic, we heard this kind of sentiments of crises exhaustion. You know, when the Syria conflict first started, it attracted huge attention from not just from journalists and politicians, from people all over the world, you know, the dreadful nature of this conflict. And now you sense a certain amount of weariness. Do you think that people can carry on, can humanitarians keep on motivating people to say, this is important, we need to do something about this? I think that's an excellent question, Imogen. And I come back to Rain. I don't want to give you advice about how to market. But to me, there's a difference between aid in terms of famine, poverty, and aid in terms of political crises. And I think people get confused when you say we need this money for humanitarian aid when you talk about conflict zones as opposed to just poverty. And I think there is a problem for people to say we're going to give money in a conflict zone instead of just seeing people who are desperate for famine in a non-conflict zone. So I think there's a confusion there between the political and the truly humanitarian. Rain, I think I'm going to have to ask you to come back in there because as you mentioned, the World Food Programme is talking about famine of, of biblical proportions, perhaps not related to conflict, but we can't, surely we can't let people by the hundreds of thousands starve to death. You're absolutely right. Uh, we have an obligation to respond. People have a right to life. They have a right to life with dignity. That needs to drive our collective actions, whatever the reasons are that people find themselves in these extremely vulnerable, precarious situations that require uh, humanitarian assistance. So unfortunately, it's not possible to separate out all of the different causes of why a particular family is in need of urgent assistance. Often, unfortunately, these things overlap and multiply and, and amplify themselves. And so and this is why we see that 20 countries globally at the greatest risk of impacts, for example, in terms of climate change, feature prominently within our global humanitarian response 
appeal. Uh, the reason why the overwhelming majority of countries included uh, in our appeal are affected by conflict or, or living through the consequences of a recently concluded conflict. But all of these things uh, overlap, and so we simply do need to respond. And my hope, our collective hope, I think this year should be actually that given this tragedy of the pandemic and its impact on populations everywhere, that there should perhaps be a more immediate sense of identification and solidarity with people that are being uh, impacted. There's a more direct connection. Everyone everywhere has been touched by this pandemic. Fortunately, uh, many people in many countries have support from their governments and have their own wherewithal to survive. Unfortunately, uh, there are 235 million people that don't. Interesting you say that, that the pandemic perhaps will help us because we're all in a, a tricky situation, if you like, will help us to identify. And yet some leaders are kind of anticipating a different reaction from their populations. Let's listen to the United Kingdom Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak. During a domestic fiscal emergency, when we need to prioritise our limited resources on jobs and public services, Sticking rigidly to spending 0.7% of our national income on overseas aid is difficult to justify to the British people. Julie, that's quite powerful. You talked about the growth of nationalism. People are worried. They're turning inwards. Their very leaders are, it seems, listening to that, encouraging them to do so. That's right. And somehow I think uh, this speech mirrors a narrative that dominated in the British society prior to that, where, you know, the conservative government justify its austerity measures on the need to cut public expenditures. In 2019, the special rapporteur on extreme poverty, Philip Alstone, went to the UK and it was quite an important political move. He published a report afterwards in which he explained that uh, the UK was the world's fifth largest economy. And in spite of that, 40 million people in the UK, that is to say a fifth of the population, live in extreme poverty. But this situation, Philip Alston explained, is a result of unnecessary austerity measures that have been put in place since 2010. So in fact, the UK social safety net have been deliberately removed and replaced with an uncaring ethos. So actually what has happened in the UK, you know, is now being projected outwards toward the rest of the world. And this is being justified by the need that exists within the current situation in the UK, but it's actually a situation that has been produced by this same government. Danny, I can see your hand up. I mean, I recognise exactly what Julie is saying there. It's quite dismaying, isn't it? Or do you see it as understandable? Well, I mean, it, it, Philip Olson, who's a fabulous special rapporteur, also went to the United States, uh, where he did a report on extreme poverty. And with the problem of the pandemic and the other problems economically, inequality in the United States, what Rain has to ask for is people who are out of work. The United States government has problems getting a stimulus package that the whole Congress agrees upon. And now some of that money that the government could be spending 
for its own citizens within the country. You're asking them to donate money to people outside their borders. There's a famous book by Stanley Hoffman called Duties Beyond Borders. How can you have citizens today who are worried about their own jobs and their own families, friends, and citizens worry about people in 200 places all over the world? Is that possible? Rain, you've got your hand up now. Um, how are you going to make people in wealthy donor countries, but people who are actually poor themselves, see the possible self-interest in helping people out in other countries? $35 billion is a lot of money, but let's be clear, this is a pittance compared with what has been mobilized this year by richer donor countries who have thrown out fiscal and monetary policy rule books to respond as they should. All of the initiatives that have been in place, furlough schemes, business loans, social payments, asset purchases through central banks, an enormous array of extraordinary measures, the cost of which is running into tens of trillions of dollars. That is not an exaggeration, tens of trillions of dollars. So 35 billion to deal with a significant percentage of the world's population, the most vulnerable, is in the scheme of things. Uh, That's not going to significantly change the financial equation that governments have to grapple with in these countries. Just from a self-interest perspective, surely if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's this hard lesson that we are completely interconnected, that countries do not exist in isolation, that what takes place in one country inevitably impacts another country. So if we're not motivated by the desire to um, support the rights of individuals, as I, as I hope we all are. But if, I mean, if we have to appeal to the self-interest argument, that self-interest argument is there. Uh, where conflict occurs, migration ensues. People move across borders. When epidemics spring up, if they're not managed, they move across borders. It's in everyone's interest to respond to these urgent needs that exist in these vulnerable locations. Julie? Yeah, I I just want to emphasize the point you just made, Rain, because I think it's a very important one. Actually, we can't continue to believe that we can continue to be wealthy in the global north while the rest of the world lives in poverty. I mean, that's unsustainable. So I think we really need to raise awareness about our interconnectedness uh, between, you know, the North and the South. Uh, I think it's a very important uh, point to make at this very moment. Well, maybe the pandemic will help us to see that, as, as Rain pointed out there, that, you know, it's been stressed to us again and again by the World Health Organization that until this pandemic is in control in every country, it's just not in, in control and that we're all at risk. I was wondering, though, coming back to asking for the money, that there is a tendency for people to think, well, I gave the money, but the problem's still there. And I think that does sometimes rain land up on your desk. It's like, you know, we gave you all that money. Why haven't you solved it? I do think, I mean, Daniel was talking before about the importance of uh, a constant dialogue with uh, the generous public that are supporting uh, humanitarian action. I I think that's vital. And I think part of the ongoing dialogue needs to be honest conversations around what the limitations are of uh, humanitarian assistance. It is not a solution to problems. It's about 
supporting people at extremely vulnerable points in time, precarious points in time, um, allowing them to survive uh, and thrive. But I think it's important that we understand that as effective as humanitarian assistance is, it's effective at saving lives and protecting uh, livelihoods that are under urgent threat. It's not a tool to fix conflicts or, or political problems. Those need to be addressed by different stakeholders in the other way. And of course, they do need to be uh, addressed. But I, I do think we need to be accurate and also modest in terms of how we describe what we do uh, on the humanitarian uh, side. That doesn't mean it's not vital. It's absolutely indispensable. Uh, it's just not the answer to fixing the problems. Danny, again, I see your hand up. Do you see a way of, of getting the message across that we do need you to give money, but um, the problems are far more deep-rooted than that. Well, the question, Imogen, come back to what Rain said. The question is, when you use the expression, build back better, uh, it's more than just a Band-Aid. It's more than just helping people in the immediate. You're looking at uh, deeper, long-term kinds of activities. And I think that's when people get confused because the humanitarian for most people is a question of just taking care of food, taking care of basic health. When you're talking about build back better, it's more political, it's much more deeper. And that's not my vision of what OCHA and certain other organizations should be doing. Interesting that you use that phrase, build back better, because I was listening to the UN Human Rights Commissioner, Michelle Bachelet, who made her speech for Human Rights Day, and she didn't quite say build back better. But let's just have a listen to what she did say. COVID-19 has zeroed in on the fissures and fragilities in our societies, exposing all our failures to invest in building fair and equitable societies. It has shown the weakness of systems that have failed to place a central focus on upholding human rights. Julie, when I was talking to you before we actually started recording this program, you were talking about a completely different system that we don't even approach crises in the right way. We react too late. We're always in emergency mode. Do you think addressing that should be part of, of building back better? Yes, exactly. I think uh, it's very important that we are able to think in different terms beyond this emergency mode that seems to dominate at the moment. I think what the COVID-19 pandemic has brought to light is the increasing dominance of a form of government that follows the paces of, uh, of emergencies and um, which does not seek to promote and implement the public good, but which is primarily concerned with preserving life and reducing human suffering. And therefore, responses to crises are thought in technical terms, medical terms, uh, in economic terms. But can we imagine how our situation would be like if we had governments that considered health a public issue instead of something to be handled by emergency medicine? Can we imagine how we would be now if governments were not only responding to crises, but thought about reducing inequalities? I think we need to replace this government by more democratic forms of political engagement with justice and with solidarity. It's kind of a regular revolution you're, you're calling for there. However, one point you raised, we've heard it again and again in the pandemic dialogue, is that health 
should be healthcare should be universal health should be the vaccine should be a public good rain if that happens and obviously that is a, a debate an ongoing debate but if that development happened around the pandemic would you see that as positive for humanitarian aid in general to my mind it's not an either or conversation around whether humanitarian assistance and aid is is important or necessary or whether we should move to something else it's understanding the appropriate place of humanitarian assistance and understanding uh, the other components that are needed a little bit like in a in a hospital and most hospitals are not just an emergency room they have a pediatric unit they have a people working on public health issues i mean you you need all of these things together and it's important they're connected in in the right way i mean we as ocha for example we focus our mandate obviously is on the humanitarian assistance and coordination of humanitarian assistance. We have a strong commitment and a stream of work that's focused on linkages and, and connections with those that are supporting longer term development issues. So this is about understanding how our emergency health intervention links to longer term work on strengthening health systems in a country. I would also say, um, though, Imogen, that I think there are some points of light that it's important to identify and, and share and celebrate because there have been some significant evolutions in the way in which humanitarian assistance is given. So, our, you know, our commitment is to move from responding after the fact to anticipating and responding as early as uh, as possible. And, and I mean, there are many examples I, I could give, but just to, to use one example in Somalia in June of this year, 2020, when it was clear that uh, forecasts were projecting a significant threat of both floods and locust infestations in a number of uh, contexts. Once those uh, projected impacts passed the threshold of 20% of the population impacted, a response was triggered. And what we were able to see uh, in Somalia in that location is close to one and a half million people were supported before a crisis hit. We were able to mitigate substantial loss of life, uh, substantial deterioration of nutritional status, and uh, support families with practical uh, issues around uh, water and sanitation and support to household finances and all of the positive impacts that go around that. And th these are models that uh, Ocha and others are, are committed to, we're rolling out. And this is about how we evolve the humanitarian response. So we're not always constantly responding after the fact. We're trying to be as, as far ahead of the curve as we can. be. Well, that seems very promising to me because at the end of the day, it probably costs less to intervene sooner and is more sustainable in terms of the community you're helping is not so violently disrupted. Julie, can I ask you, I just wanted to come back to what Rain was talking about, about intervening sooner, anticipatory intervention. Does this go some way at all towards the more interconnected, coherent vision of how we do things that you were talking about earlier? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. Actually, I think, you know, what, what I, I wanted to point out was the fact that we live in this emergency imaginary, to use an expression by Craig, Craig Calhoun. It's an imaginary that has taken shape during the 20th century as a result of World War I, World War II, as a result of the scale of population displacement and mass atrocities. And really, this imaginary has become a counterpoint to the ideal of a global order it implies that things normally work well, uh, but occasionally they can go wrong. 
So it's a, it's a kind of a managerial orientation that tends to dominate our response. It seeks to solve the exception to the global order rather than reorganizing the contradiction of that very global order. So it reflects also, I think, a kind of skepticism about master plans to end all conflicts, poverty and injustice. It reflects a, a kind of doubt about comprehensive plans for improving the human lot. So, of course, we can rejoice yourself that humanitarian organizations are trying to find solution before crisis occur. But I don't think it should be their work. I think it should be the work of a coordinated response at the global level that comes from states that agree that uh, to, to go beyond this emergency imaginary to find um, you know, all the ways of imagining the life on this planet. But are we um, let down by the lack of imagination of our leaders? I mean, let's not forget that Antonio Guterres called for a global ceasefire. He's called for it several times. He hasn't got the most enthusiastic of, of responses, has he, Danny? Well, I mean, that's the problem. I mean, I thought that the pandemic would lead to greater multilateral cooperation and it does seem to me that in general, it's gotten more a nationalistic response. So to some extent, although I can intellectually agree with Julie, I think it's very difficult today to get countries to agree to do anything. And even within the countries, I see that in the United States, Democrats and Republicans can't even agree on a stimulus package. So if they can't agree within the country, how are they going to agree between countries? Uh, but I do think th th that OCHA's system of having governments agree uh, and having looked to some extent to medium and long-term planning, I think is very, very worthy and something that has to be continued without interfering with the national political scene in the country, which I think many countries would object to. As you said, Danny, we've seen this worrying push towards nationalism, despite the urgings of, of the WHO and the UN in general to work together to deal with the global pandemic. We have, as Ocha has pointed out, serious humanitarian crisis and some perhaps getting even more serious in 2021. I don't want to end this program on a depressing note though because I think we've um, come up with some very interesting and constructive ideas about how we might think about how we do things and how we might support our humanitarians to build back better as we say but to finish up maybe let me ask you first Rain what are your particular perhaps pressure points if you if you like for 2021 areas that concern you areas you think we really really need to be focused on? I think we look with real concern at the, the trends that we've described in the global humanitarian overview. We are facing the very real prospect that for the first time in more than 20 years, there will be a substantial increase in the number of people that live in absolute poverty in the world um, and um, regression in terms of what's happening on vaccinations, coverage, different areas of progress that we've made in recent years. So from a concern perspective, it's about an ability to mobilize the level of resources and attention we need. And it is both resources and attention um, to, uh, to respond to this situation. 
the points of light that I see when we look at what was achieved in 2020 in immediate response to the pandemic. Very, very quickly, donor governments were able to mobilize several billion dollars, which allowed assistance to go to tens of millions of people as part of a response to COVID. We, we know what, what can be done. World Food Programme, for example, distributed $1.7 billion worth of cash support to vulnerable people in more than 60 countries as part of a, a response. We've talked about the models that exist. Um, we know how to deliver anticipatory action in different locations. Um, it's more effective. It saves more lives. It saves money in the process. So there are models that uh, work, and I think that's clearly going to be a strong area of focus uh, for us. And I think it's important that donor publics understand that we are constantly innovating and improving the quality of uh, the way in which uh, we support vulnerable populations. That is an important message to, uh, to share across. So concern in terms of trend lines, concern about the ability to mobilize resources, uh, some points of light and encouragement in terms of the quality of humanitarian action and what we're able to achieve in tangible terms for the most vulnerable people. Thank you for that. Julie, what do you hope we might change in 2021? How should our thinking change, perhaps? Um, crisis trigger, always trigger some changes. And indeed, when crises occur, usually the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around us. So, of course, in a context like the one we are in now, with, you know, increased power of right-wing government, the ideas that are lying around are quite conservative. In fact, I think these governments are instrumentalizing this shock to exploit public fears, to suspend democratic freedoms, to push for radical free market policies that enrich the 1%. But in fact, it could go otherwise also in another direction, if you like. And it may not lead always to such radical liberal reforms. We can, for instance, uh, take the example of the 1930s after the, the crash, when it was a moment when a new deal was, uh, was established. So it could really go in both directions. Um, and we have to make sure as engaged citizens that uh, we also contribute to mainstreaming ideas that go into a different direction. Danny, I'm going to give the, the final word to you. Julie said, situation we're in, it could go in either direction nicer, more egalitarian society, or, and ominously, she mentioned the 1930s, a selfish and more nationalistic one. What do you think? Once the pandemic is somehow under control, the economic repercussions will come in, and hopefully there will not be a global depression. But countries have been spending money in order to get stimulus done, and eventually the bill is going to come in. And my only hope is that when the bill comes in, we don't forget what happened during the pandemic and those people who are out there who really need desperate help from organizations like OCHA. Uh, and that's my worry that we will forget that uh, when the bill comes in for what we have to pay for the pandemic. On that slightly cautious note, that brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to Rain Paulson of OCHA, Julie Bilo of Geneva's Graduate Institute, 
and as ever, our resident analyst, Daniel Warner. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you all for listening. And just before we leave you, here's a taster of our next Inside Geneva podcast, when we'll be launching an occasional series on treaties that changed our lives. The first memory is the very day that I entered the hospital for war victims of the Red Cross. It was a big room with more or less 70, 80 beds. And when I was walking, I realized that all these people were without one or two legs. There's no question uh, that this has been an extremely successful treaty, that it has made a real difference on the ground, uh, primarily because it has saved so many lives and so many limbs and so many livelihoods. When they brought down the gavel on the, the treaty in September of 1997, that was the most special moment of my life. Yes, we'll be looking at the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines, and what it has meant for communities, campaigners, doctors and, of course, landmine victims. The podcast will be available from December 29th. I'm Imogen Folks. This has been Inside Geneva, a Swissinfo.ch production. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to Swissinfo.ch forward slash ENG forward slash Inside Geneva. Join us again next time, and thank you all for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site, and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.